Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, hola, mi gente. What's good? It's your girl, Odalis Jasmine, and y'all are listening to Hella Latino. Today, I'm talking to Wendy Amara, life and business Latina coach with over 16 years of experience. She specializes in coaching ambitious Latinas who want to reach big life, career, and business goals. So if you're feeling stuck, lacking clarity, or overwhelmed with your business or your life, she is the coach for you. Wendy is a child of immigrants from Guatemala and has built a successful million-dollar coaching practice, even though being diagnosed with bipolar and ADHD in her 20s. In this episode, she spills achievement on navigating life, feeling othered, how coaching helped to create a better quality life, and how you can do the same. Let's get into it. Wendy, well, I'm so excited to have you on. I have so many questions for you, but we'll start with the first one. How do you identify and why? So I identify as Latina or, you know, Latinx, she, her pronouns and Latina because I identify with Latin America. My parents are from Guatemala, which is in Central America. So I've always identified as, you know, Latina Americana versus Hispanic, right? Which kind of speaks more to Spain or having ancestral ancestry from Spain. Even though I lived in Spain for six months in college, during college times, like I was studying Spanish. It was a great adventure. Love that. But I definitely relate more to the Latino culture, uh, more so than the European culture. So I consider myself a Latina or Latinx or Latine. I mean, you know, all that. Yeah. 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 I love, first of all, having another Centroamericana on the podcast. Shout out. Are we going to start cumbiang? Uh, Are we going to play a cumbia? Ah, put it. Okay. So where's the DJ at? <laughs> I have a question for you. And this is kind of a, almost like a personal question because there's a, not a lot of Central Americans represented, right? In mass media or Latino content. And then when we do see, you know, Centroamericanos, we tend to sometimes identify as Latino or Latina, and very rarely do I identify by country of origin. And I say that because it's been a, a very, something that's been on my mind lately. And it, it happened, the conversation happened during this event where I was talking to all these Latinas and I told them I was Honduran and they're like, oh, you don't meet a lot of Hondurans. And I was like, well, there's actually a very famous Honduran that everybody knows, but she doesn't talk about being Honduran. She says she's Latina. It's America Ferreira. Never mentions that she's Honduran. And it always makes me sad because I'm like, girlfriend, we're right here. We're waiting for you to say Hondureña. But it's a very interesting thing. But I'm curious for you, Wendy, have you ever, did you ever think about that? Or have you always been very clear? I am Guatemalteca through and through. And I'm also Latina through and through. Do you flip flop oh, between yeah. those titles? 
Oh yeah. Thank you. This is a great question. Yeah. Cause you just made me think of some things when I'm in a room for full of Latinas, I will say I'm from Guatemala. My family's from Guatemala. I'm guatemalteca. Yeah. So I do specifically say that I'm Centroamericana when I'm in a room full of Latinas, because I always want to bring Guatemala's name to the forefront. Because a lot of people don't know where Guatemala is. They've never heard of Guatemala. I'll never forget this one time. This happened in an upper division class at UCLA. So I went to undergrad and grad school at UCLA. I was in an upper division grad class. Okay. So these are like (laughs) supposed to be smart people. And it was a sociology class because that's, that was my major. So sociology class, they divided us up into small groups and we were supposed to tell our story of like where our family was from. So I start to talk and I say, yeah, so my family's from Guatemala. And this girl looks at me and is like, what? That's funny, Wendy. You don't look Asian. Uh, I was like, <laughs> what? What do you mean Asian, right? I mean, my mouth just dropped. I was yeah. like, what do you mean Asian? I'm like, why would I look Asian? And she's, isn't that an island off the South Pacific somewhere? I'm like, no, girl, that is not an island. You're thinking Guam. And no offense against Guam, love Guam, but Guam is in a whole nother part of the world, girlfriend. I'm in another part. I'm in Central America. Do you know where Guatemala is, right? And so then I had to go into a whole geography like class a little bit with everybody in the class. I was like, listen, there's this part called Centro America and there's a whole (laughs) bunch of countries there. And we're different from Mexico and our Spanish is different. And what we consider like our enchilada, completely different enchilada from the enchilada in Mexico. So I just felt this need to start like educating everybody about Guatemala. So whenever Mm -hmm. I have an opportunity, I mention Guatemala because we don't get a lot of, you know, attention brought to our, brought to us. Nobody really talks about Guatemala as much. And whenever I'm in the forefront of people, I try to bring it up. And I also try to do as much as I can to give back to like my country of origin. So if I'm fundraising for a group or like when I did my podcast launch, I did it specifically as a fundraiser for Maya Impact, that is an indigenous a girls' school in the center mm-hmm. of Guatemala. So it was a beautiful experience to stay connected to my roots. Yeah. I'm also really I, proud to be Mayan, like my Mayan roots. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Talk about it. I am laughing at this story. Like, what? You don't look like you're right? Asian because... You, cra- you, ha- you have to laugh. You have to laugh because I remember in school, I said I was Honduran and they're like, oh, you're Hungarian? And I was like, nope, that's not what I said. <laughs> I said Honduran. Um, and it's so, it's just so funny. You grow up with this almost, you're almost like teacher. And it's funny because I'm usually the first Honduran people meet outside of Latinos. And even some Latinos too, I'm the first person they meet that's Honduran. And I feel like I'm almost representing a whole country. I'm really, I'm like, damn, I got to hold it down for the Hondurans because we're really dope. And I got to show you through me, my story, my food, my language, my accent, like the todo. But it's funny how we're Central America is often never like in the conversation. It's United States, Mexico, oops, skip Panama and Colombia and Brazil. And then he goes on to South America. And it's we have so much beauty in that little centro. One hundred percent, girl. That's why we got to represent. We got to represent. Yeah, I've always felt like behind a little bit of all the other Latin American countries. And I think that's also part of why I'm driven 
Like part of that Mm. drive comes from like representation. We need to be represented even among Latinas. We're not represented as often, right? Mm-hmm. So yes, that might be uh, why we're both sitting here talking on a podcast now. <laughs> ah, there you go. And that's exactly why we love this space, right? Because you get to talk about these stories. And, you know, I think it's, we don't see our stories represented. So why not just be the storytellers of our own stories? Exactly. It's almost like we know, have no other choice, know? right? Yeah. I was just going to say, if we don't do it, who will? But Wendy, let's talk about... Let's talk about your story. We heard bits and pieces of your story going to UCLA and being an undergrad and grad student there. But let's throw it all the way back to Wendy growing up. Talk to me about your life, your first gen story, all of the things. Yeah. So I grew up in a small town called Sun Valley in the San Fernando Valley. Nobody ever knows of it because it's like between two really famous towns uh, Burbank. Burbank is like this, you know, world known town because it's connected to Hollywood and it's got an equestrian program and there's, it's, you know, it's a big known town. It's supposed to be the good side. So Sun Valley is on the other side of the railroad tracks, let's say, right? I grew up on literally the other side of the tracks. <laughs> and if you're listening to this, you know, San Fernando Road, you know, I'm literally talking about railroad tracks. So I grew up on the <laughs> opposite side of Burbank in the poor side of Burbank uh, called Sun Valley, the opposite side. That's where I grew up. And that's where, you know, my parents bought their first house. When they first came here from Guatemala in the 70s, they actually went to Hollywood. And it's funny because one of my aunts still lives in this like apartment building that she bought that was near the border of Hollywood and Los Feliz. And when they like in the late 1970s, early 1980s, the landlord of the building was offering to sell it. And my parents and their whole family, because, you know, my tias, everybody lived in that apartment building. It was like that first apartment building that everybody who migrates over starts to live in, right? Mm-hmm. And I, my mom now tells me the story of how they felt like they didn't know enough about the United States or about paperwork to really buy the building. But they had the thought like, oh, my God, it would be great for us to buy this building. I always tell my mom, had you bought that building in Los Feliz, <laughs> it would be worth, like, I kid you not, it would probably be worth $20 million now or something crazy because of the, mm. like, rental income that could have came in from buying this building, you know, in the 1970s. So my parents came here in the 1970s and then me and my brother, actually, and they bought this little house in Sun Valley where they still live to this day, my parents. Like, they still live in the same little house <laughs> that they bought back in the, this is the 1980s. And I grew up, first I grew up going to Catholic school. So I had this whole Catholic school experience. And then I rebelled and I refused (laughs) to do my uh, confirmation, right? Your confirmation is like when you're like 14, 15. And I had this whole rebellion because there was no girl altar servers. Like as a girl, you weren't allowed to be an altar server. And that to Mm -hmm. me just wasn't right. So I always had this like justice thing about me. I was always fighting for justice in some way. And being the smart little cookie that I was, I convinced my parents to let me go to a public school because there was going to be more opportunities at a public school. And because my grades were what they were and my birth date was like at the end of the year, Mm. they allowed me to skip a grade, like to go from a Catholic school into a public school. So I actually skipped eighth grade, which was a big freaking deal. (laughs) Yeah. In terms of what it did for me socially. Right. So I went from this little private school, skipped eighth grade and went to this huge junior high in ninth grade where 
I was like, it was like throwing me to the sharks. I had no idea. I had no idea because I had been really protected in a lot of ways. And Catholic school is very small. So, you know, your class is 24 kids. And now my class is like a thousand kids, right? It's crazy. There's so many kids and so much going on and you're exposed to a lot more. And I had been so protected. I had no idea. So it really didn't prepare me. I ended up getting bullied a lot in junior high, especially. And then in high school, I ended up going to a different high school because I got into a magnet program, which were these like special programs or whatever. So I went to this magnet program and started to create more of a new version of myself because the bullying really did a number on my self-esteem. But for many years, I struggled with anxiety, depression, and a lot of it stemming from not having any confidence in who I really was because I felt like I was just one step away from somebody making some joke about me or, you know, and the jokes were oftentimes that I was dumb or that I didn't know what I was talking about. or I was never cool. For sure. I was never like the cool kid. I was always the kid that was like, huh, what's going on? A little (laughs) not really understanding everything always. Yeah. But in junior high, I started to make in high school, actually, I started to make more friends and I started to kind of find a little bit of my way. But my confidence really didn't go up until I was like, really, honestly, in my 30s and my 40s, like my 40s have been way better than my 20s ever were. Wow. And I'm almost out of my 40s now. So I'm hoping the 50s get even better. Oh, girl, you look amazing. I thought you were like, girl, I thought you were early 30s. Oh, thank that. you. Thank you, girl. I'm late 40. If I ain't that. in the middle anymore. <laughs> I I want to, there's so many questions I want to ask you now, but I want to throw it back to why your parents immigrated in the first place. Because I think that it's always really interesting to understand where our parents come from. And I think so much of that immigration story is rooted in who we are and how we maneuver the world. So tell me about what was the why behind coming to Sun Valley and why Sun Valley out of all places or why Hollywood? Yeah. Yeah. So my dad is like always been super proud to be from Guatemala. Like in my household, we had flags, like Guatemalan flags everywhere. He played music. We made, you know, platanos fritos and black beans every day. There were always black beans in my house. Like we were just super proud, right? There was a quetzal everywhere. And then my dad would talk about Guatemala and tell us stories about how it's the best country ever. And so he didn't come here wanting to come here. My mom convinced him. This is the story anyways. That my mom convinced him that this would be a better life eventually for us. And when I've talked to my mom about it, what she tells me is that she married my dad, right? And her sister, my tia Julie, would come down here every once in a while, would visit the United States and then go back to Guatemala. And so she, my tia Julie was a little bit back and forth. So they already had an awareness around the United States. And my dad has always been in leadership roles. Like he's always uh, moved into kind of being a change agent in a lot of ways. And my mom started to see that he was getting interested in politics. And if you know anything about the Guatemalan government and politics, it is not a good road to go down. Like it could lead to serious, I mean, Guatemala is where we had the School of the Americas. I mean, there's a lot, right? We, and we can get into what the United States has done in Guatemala and why the state of Guatemala is the way it is now has a lot to do with what the United States has done. My dad was always keenly aware of a lot of that, like what the United States was doing in Guatemala. So my mom decided, you know, I think it's going to be best if we move to the United States. But really underneath that was a fear that my dad would go down this road of running for office or doing something in the political realm and that he would end up getting killed. It was scary. I mean, but this was like 
late 1970s. So it was before the whole civil war that happened in El Salvador and all of that started opening up. This was pre to that. But I think my mom could already predict, like she was already seeing that my dad was going to go down that road. So she made a decision that she wanted to have kids, but she wanted to have them in the United States. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I don't know if she fully used like sex as the weapon at that point. It was like, listen, if you want to keep doing the thing, we got to move to the United States. But she convinced my dad that they needed to go to the United States. Right. And so, and my mom had come down already with my aunt one time and they had gone to New York. My mom actually lived in New York for three months and she stayed at wow. a YWCA. Isn't that crazy? One of those wow. um, centers. Yeah. My mom was like fearless in a lot of ways. I'm like, that's crazy. She wanted to check out New York because she wasn't sure if we should move to New York or to Los Angeles. She had mm. heard about both. She had heard that both were great cities, that they already had like a Guatemalan community that we could tap into. But she eventually decided LA because LA was so beautiful and the weather was great. And, you know, and, That's how she ended up finding this little apartment in Hollywood that my aunt already knew somebody who lived in in another apartment that came from the same like barrio that my parents came from or the same zona that my parents came from. So that's how they all started becoming friends. And then the whole apartment building was full of Guatemaltecos. Like everybody was from Guatemala in the apartment building. Right. And then my other aunt came. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's how, that's our immigration story. And me and my brother were born here. Yeah, and that apartment uh, complex. <laughs> apartment complex. All right. And we took over the whole apartment because that's how it starts, right? You hear from somebody that, oh, my tia lives there. And then, oh, the kid I went to high school with and the primo de esta persona, mm-hmm. del tío de esta persona. And then everybody ends up, you know, it's a hookup, right? Everybody's, there's an apartment yeah. available. Yeah. Yeah. And I to think this when- day, my parents are still friends with some of the people that lived in that apartment building. I love that. You know, it's so funny. Two things that came to mind. One, the same thing happened with my family, but I think it happens with every immigrant family is, you know, one person and, oh yeah, that's nice over there. Let's move here. And then you just start building that small community. And I think that was one of the my favorite things about my childhood is being able to like be surrounded by family all the time. Oh, el primo hermano, el tío, el tío abuelo, like all the people just started moving in and it just became this party, (laughs) party of just like family everywhere. And I think it's also when you're immigrating here, you want to find a little bit of home, right? And one thing that I love about immigrants and I love about our community is that we always find community. Anywhere we go, we're always, you know, we just gravitate toward it. And I give a shout out to my mom. She, when she immigrated here, she planned parties. She was a little planner. Oh, a little party planner. Yeah. Yes. But she would sell food at these parties, all Honduran food. And then all the Hondureños started coming to her. And that's how she met my dad at a party. And he was like, oh, she's feeding me. I love her. That's how he fell in love. But oh, so they met just, here. They met in the U.S.? They met in the U.S., yeah. But just a beautiful, just like how we're just community builders. And I'm listening to your parents or you talking about your parents. And I'm like, okay, fearless. That gives me windy vibes. Change agent. That also gives me windy vibes. Like we are really kind of a melting pot of our parents and our stories, right? It always meshes. 
Yeah, 100%. Yeah, they definitely were community people, community vibe. And I remember being a kid and playing in that apartment building. And you're right, there were always like kids and cousins and somebody had a ball and somebody had a new bat and we would share all the toys. And if somebody got a mm. bike, everyone was trying to ride that bike in the in that little parkway, right? In the driveway. Yeah. We grew up in that kind of a space. It was beautiful. It was beautiful to have that mm. level of community and trust and union right? Where you could help each other out because yeah. there's 10 families in this one apartment building. So <laughs> it worked there out. A, it worked out. Was there a moment for you, Wendy, where you were outside of that comfort zone? It sounds like high school might've been it, but outside of that comfort zone of what you know, having the primos and the family and the apartment complex, and then going to this little place in Sun Valley, like when was the moment where you started to realize, oh, I'm just a little bit different than the rest of my peers. It doesn't even have to be about culture, but just you felt like you were just a little different. What was that pivotal moment? I think it started in junior high for sure because of the bullying that I experienced. So I felt like I didn't fit in. Like I always felt like I was a little oddball and I was just different. I saw things from a different perspective, especially when it came to what I saw as an injustice. If I saw somebody getting treated badly, it really affected me. I couldn't just move on from it. I couldn't just keep on moving. Like some people I noticed, you know, like when the Supreme Court made this decision uh, about, you know, changing the laws regarding abortion, like I spent that day in bed. Like it really affects me. Like I, I feel the pain of what's happening around us. And I've been that way since I was a little kid. So in junior high is when I really started to feel it. Cause I think in junior high, you're really trying to fit in. And part of how you identify yourself, right. Is as a in a community or you fit in with a certain group of friends. And I just wasn't like the smartest kid or the one that knew everything or the coolest kid. Like as much as I tried to be that, I really wasn't. So I started to feel like I'm a little different. And then I would say in college also, in college and even after college when I started working because I had done everything that my parents told me I was supposed to do to be happy, right? I had gone to a good college. I had gone good grades or whatever. I had checked off all the boxes. And then I had the dream job, supposedly. And I was still miserable. Like I wasn't happy. It wasn't really filling me. Even though I was doing good work, like I worked in the nonprofit world and I was always wanting to be a change agent, wanting to make an impact. But it still felt, oh my God, this is so much work for such a little pay. And I don't even feel like I'm making a dent in, you know, society <laughs> in a big way. Like I didn't know it then that I was up to a big game or that my spirit wanted to be up to a big game. I didn't know it. I just knew this isn't enough for me. Like this job isn't doing it for me. And I want more freedom. I want to be able to do what I want to do. And hello, there's all this abundance here in this world, you know, in the United States. I want more of that. Like, how do I get more of that on our side? on you know our side of the table, so to speak. Yeah. How so I, I love this conversation around bullying because I think it happens a lot. And as a woman of color, gaining that confidence back, like it just the confidence in general for women of color, I feel like it's always so challenging because you're never enough, right? You either have it too much, you're like, oh you're too cocky. Or if you don't have it, oh you're too insecure. There's always a name for how we just act and how we decide to wear our confidence. Now you having that confidence kind of knocked down a few times and you said it took you a long time to rebuild it. For those who are listening, who are struggling with that confidence or even wavering confidence, what's your, how did you build it? 
and how do you continue to live it every single day? Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's a big, that's a big question. How do, how did I build my confidence? I really started to do things that seemed really scary. That seemed like almost impossible to do, but then I would do it. So, and the first, the beginning of this was my introduction into personal development work. Like I never knew, for example, that you could manage your thoughts, that you could pick thoughts that were going to work better for you, or that you could learn to regulate your emotions. That even if I was in the process of somebody saying something to me that would have hurt me, I didn't have to let it hurt me. I could actually mm-hmm. hold my own and, you know, reframe whatever they're saying or you know, put myself in, a, in an imaginary bubble and allow it to bounce back to them. It didn't have to be um, a big deal to me. So that was really like understanding that I think was the first time I started to build my own confidence. I also felt when I started to do personal development, I started to work with a coach, like my first coach, right? One of the mm-hmm. things that I learned was that I was responsible for my life. Nobody else. It didn't matter if there was racism, although racism does matter, but it didn't matter if how society was treating me. It didn't matter what family I grew up in. It didn't matter where I came from, that ultimately my life and my results in my life were my decisions and my Mm. responsibility. And so what that did for me is it allowed me to feel empowered. Oh, okay. So wait, it's up to me. My life entirely is up to me. Like I get to choose. And they were like, yeah, you choose how much money you make, where you work, what, you know, all of it. It's all you. So you can yeah. build whatever life you want because it's your choice. So when I fully understood mm-hmm. that and I had an experience like in my body where I felt that because I think we also have to embody things, right? It's not just enough to have the thought. You actually have to experience it in your body. And that's how something becomes a belief. It's when you take a thought and you actually feel it in your body. It actually goes into your cells and then it becomes a belief. And once it becomes a belief, it's okay, I'm taking action from this place. So those are some of the ways that I built confidence. Once I felt confident, I started to take more action. And then it was like a loop, like the taking action created more confidence and the more confidence created taking more action. And then Mm. gaining more confidence created more. It's like I built this courageous muscle and it got built through taking action consistently. And sometimes I'd fall flat on my face when I took action. but a real confidence comes from doing things that you think are impossible. And then you do it yeah. and you're like, oh my God, I didn't die. So that's that confidence. <laughs> are there moments that you still find yourself struggling with confidence? Do you have those off days? And if so, how do you navigate that? How do you give yourself grace through those moments? Yeah. I mean, definitely because you know, there's always another mountain to climb. Like I, I try to tell people you climb a mountain and then once you get to the top, it's not like you're done right? It's you got to one stay at that top of the mountain and then you climb usually another mountain. So it's really important to give ourselves grace and give ourselves love through that whole process. But yeah, I deal with challenges all the time. I mean, one of the challenges right now that I'm building my confidence in is I'm shifting from being a coach, which is the way my identity has been for the last 16 years of my life, to being a CEO because my coaching company has grown so much. So it's a different identity. A CEO is a different mindset. It requires a different set of skills from just being a coach, not just being a coach. I think a coach is like an amazing thing to be. I'll always be a coach in my heart. And in some ways, a CEO is a coach, but a CEO is also managing, you know, finances and team building and 
you know, HR and like this whole other world that's bigger. So my confidence right now, I'm building my confidence in stepping into being a CEO. Yeah. And some of the ways that I do that is I connect with Confident Wendy. So one of the things that I practice on a regular basis is connecting with Confident Wendy. There's a version of me that's super confident, just like there's a version of you that's super confident. Mm. We all have that version of us, right? Sometimes I call her Fierce Wendy. Sometimes I call her Chingona Wendy, like what depends on what mood I'm in. But I connect with her. I connect with her essence. And there's a couple of ways to connect with her. Sometimes I think of a memory that brings her back up. Like when's the last time I felt really confident? And then I go back to that memory. I relive that memory and that brings up the confidence, right? Sometimes I read something that like a client said about me, like a testimonial or a thank you card or something that I got and that lifts my spirits up and reminds me, oh yeah, I'm really confident. And then there are these moments where I like call my girlfriend. I mean, I've had this happen (laughs) at least twice in the last couple of months where I'm like, hey, I just need you to remind me of who I really am (laughs) Mm. because I Mm. forget. We all forget, right? It's hard. It's hard. And my friend will just be like, you're a badass, Wendy. Here's everything you've done, blah, 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 blah. And I just need it mirror back to me. Like I need somebody to remind me who's outside of me because our human brain is so powerful that it will shift you into just thinking about all the negatives. Like it's just keeping track of all the things we're not getting done versus all the things we have done in our whole life, right? It's crazy. It's crazy. So those are some of the ways that I reconnect and give myself grace and remind myself of like confident Wendy. And I'm not always confident Wendy. Not always. I mean, you're not going to be one way all the time, but she's in there. She's in there. Yeah. She's popping and she's fierce AF. (laughs) Thank you. Look at you, Odalis. Yeah. Do you have a name for your confident self? I don't, um, but I'm going to, I'm going to think of one, but I think it's a, I love this topic around confidence. And I love this topic around just women of color embracing who they are, because I think we're labeled so many things. I literally just had a conversation with my therapist about this yesterday. I'm like, you know, you, a Latina can walk into a room and it can be so many different types of things. Someone can think, oh, like she is spicy or she's a lot, or she's really like aggressive or Maybe it's over-sexualized or maybe it's you think that person's going to be the dutiful woman that calls you poppy. Like whatever it is that you think, there's always these titles and stereotypes surrounding Latinas and to just exist and to just be confident in however you want to be, like you wearing your hat, me wearing no makeup, like however you want to show up, that's okay. There's no box that we fit in. And so I love that you're giving all of us tips on how to embrace confident Wendy, confident Odalis, confident whoever is listening. I think we all need a name for our inner confident bad bitch. (laughs) Exactly. Ooh, I like that. I like bad bitch. Yeah. Yeah. Because then it helps you to reconnect with her and bring her back up if you name her and then you can build a relationship with her, you know, and sometimes she needs to come out. Sometimes the bad bitch needs to be the one walking in the room. Sometimes not. That part. That part. Can we reel it back? I want to go back to you going to Catholic school, junior high, skipping a whole grade because that's wild. How, because you're a coach now, I feel like you've mastered this like confident Wendy, how to channel her, how to bring her to the surface. I want to talk about pre-coach Wendy that was struggling with bullying or was trying to figure out her identity. 
Talk to me about those moments and going to college. What was that journey? What's that story right there? Yeah. I mean, when I was in junior high, I remember hiding in the bathroom. Like I would hide in the stalls because I just didn't want to see like the girls that would pick on me or, you know, talk badly about what I was wearing or, you know, back then we called it bagging. Like they were bagging on me. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And some of these were my friends. Like some of these were my like circle of friends that quote unquote friends. Right. But I hadn't really understood that. I just kind of threw myself in and wanted to be with the cool kids. But it's not really where I belonged, which is okay. I fully acknowledge it now. (laughs) So I was trying to fit in with the cool kids. I was trying to do the things that I thought would help me fit in with them. And through that process, I was really denying who I was authentically. And it was painful, girl. Oh, my God. It was painful. There were moments where I would cry in the morning that I didn't want to go to school. There was a lot of absenteeism because I would just stay in bed. And then, of course, my parents would get all upset. ¿Cómo no fuiste a la escuela otra vez? ¿Por qué no estás yendo a la escuela? You know, and it was hard for me to explain to them because in Guatemala, they had an amazing childhood. Like, my mom grew up on a farm. And even though there wasn't running water and stuff like that, there was like animales and everybody knew each other and there was a lot of trust and there was a lot of love. And my dad would tell me about all the parties that they used to throw and in mm. like with his kids, with his friends at school. And he was like, oh, that high school was the best time of his life. He always told me that high school was the best time of his life and that, you know, it would be the same for me. And it was one of the worst times, like junior high was one of the worst times of my life. And high school is one of the worst times of my life. And yeah, so it was a completely different experience for me. So I always felt like they didn't understand any of what was going on with me and that there was something wrong with me. But there was definitely something wrong with me because why wasn't I loving life every day? Why wasn't I loving the experience of going to school every day? And this is part of why I ended up going to a magnet high school because I at least got smart enough to know okay, I can't stay in these circles, like with these group of friends. I've got to go out and meet new people. And that started to create uh, a new identity for me. That started the beginning of me, you know, reclaiming who I really am authentically. But honestly, now at 47, this is the most real, authentic version of me that I've ever been. Mm. Now, yeah. Did you, More of it's were you been stripped able- away through the years. <laughs> I, I love that. Were you able to be vulnerable with your parents at that age and say, this is what I'm going through? Or did you feel like because you knew they wouldn't understand, you kind of kept it to yourself and, you know, hid it from them? Yeah, for a long time, I kept it to myself because I didn't think they would understand. And I also thought it was my problem. Like, I Mm. thought I was doing something wrong and I needed to figure it out on my own because my dad was like, ¿Qué? ¿Tienes problemas con las amigas? No importan las amigas. Like, whatever. Like, it was, you know, like friendship you know, problems when you're 13 years old, who cares? But as I got older, because I did have bouts of of real depression. So as I got older, my mom became more concerned, right? And she started asking me more questions. And so I started opening up and being more vulnerable with my mom and my dad. And my dad didn't quite get it. He never really understood any of it. He didn't understand any of the mental health stuff. Because I remember reaching out to my mom and asking her if I could see a therapist, right? Because I was like, you know, I don't know what's happening, but I don't feel normal. I don't feel good. I don't want to go to school. I'm scared. I feel like crying all the time, you know. And my mom, I remember being like, okay, mija, I'm going to look out. I'm going to go and see if I can find anybody. And then she never did. 
But her reaction at least was enough to like calm me down a little bit. Okay, somebody else is aware at least. And she was actually really like she held space for me. She was vulnerable in that moment also. Like she held space for me and I could see that she was also worried about these ups and downs that I would go through and the depression and she didn't know how to help me. She didn't know how to help me, but she wanted to help me. And that made me feel a little bit safe. I love that. And I love that you've now dedicated space to help other people channel that confidence and hold space for others. And I feel like sometimes we tend to be what we wish we had when we were younger, right? And hearing your story, I'm like, oh, it totally makes sense why she does so much of this personal development work because it's something that probably has saved you in a lot of occasions. And I'm sure Confident Wendy has saved you in many occasions. And I probably, I I think, and this is me assuming, but I'm sure that little Wendy would have loved that Confident Wendy at the time. And so I think it's like very powerful that we get to create this life that is fulfilling because it's something that we wish we had. And so I want to talk about that. Like you, you did UCLA you worked a nine to five and then you went into entrepreneurship. What's, what's that story there? I'm sure that's a whole different beast. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole different beast. And it starts from the same place, though, that you were just talking about with me really owning who I am and coming out of this like hole of depression. So it was in me searching for how to heal myself, me mm-hmm. being on the search for how to heal myself, because I had tried therapy. And it hadn't really worked for me. I didn't feel like it was moving me forward. At the time, I had also been diagnosed with ADHD, which means my brain just works differently, right? It processes really fast. It's thinking about 100 things at the same time. Uh, It's a different, I look at it as a gift now because I can help so many people with ADHD also, especially in the Latino community because we don't talk about it much. Que es eso? Mm -hmm. What what does she have? So I talk about it a lot and I own it. There's no shame around it with me. It's just like, yeah, you know, I have brown eyes. I have ADHD. (laughs) So I had been diagnosed with that too. So it was challenging for me to figure out like, how do I continue to move forward in my life in a way that's going to actually have me feel happy? Because these list of things that you keep giving me that are supposed to equal happiness, it's not working for me. I've done all those things. I did the going to school. I did the get a good job. I've done all those things and I'm still miserable. So ¿qué ondas? what's going on? Like this American dream thing that you sold me on mommy and daddy doesn't work for me. And I was shocked that it didn't, but it didn't. Uh, so I started to look for like personal development work. And it was actually my cousin who introduced me to the first like program I ever went to. And I discovered this whole world called coaching. Now keep in mind, this was like 18 years ago. So like Facebook didn't even exist. Okay. <laughs> Before Facebook, Facebook. okay? (laughs) Not even Facebook didn't even exist, let alone like Instagram, TikTok, nothing. This is pre all of that. Mm. This is like the dawn of all that started to open up. So nobody knew what coaching really was. Up until then, coaching had only, certainly in the Latino community, no one knew what coaching was at all. Mm -hmm. The only people who had done coaching had been like executives, right? Like people who worked for companies, they knew what coaching was. But the average human being didn't know what coaching was, less alone Latinos. We certainly didn't know. I didn't know. But this program worked for me. They gave me tools that were like manageable and I could actually implement them. And then I started to shift the way I was thinking and I started to manage my thoughts. I started to manage my feelings. I started to regulate my nervous system, which was something I had never experienced before. And then I started to take more 
courageous action in my life on a regular basis. And I got results. Like I actually started to produce better results, make more money, start dating, feel more confident on a day-to-day basis. Like it was producing actual results for me. So I was like, oh my God, I feel like I found gold. This is the best thing ever. I want to start teaching this. Like, how do I start to teach other people? Because I know there's a lot of people that were struggling just like me. A lot of people that had fallen for the facade of the American dream and it just wasn't working for them, right? And this was another option, which by the way, had nothing to do with the job isn't what makes you happy. The relationship isn't what makes you happy. The house, the stuff is not what makes you happy. You learn to make yourself happy. It's a shift in your perspective and how you're looking at life. It's a paradigm shift that happens and that you experience in your body. And that's what changes everything, right? So I had that and I wanted to share it with more people. And that's why I started looking into becoming a coach. And then I actually at some point got certified. And even then it took three or four years for me to fully move into coaching. And when I first moved into coaching, I started with just a couple of clients mostly, you know, white male clients, because that's who was paying for coaching. And I was new, right? I was new in this space. I wasn't a Latina specific coach. I've only been coaching Latina specifically for five years, but I've been coaching for 16, 17 years. So I have a lot of experience before that. And then I ended up getting hired by uh, companies who would have me come in and coach their teams or their staff for a particular event or something like that. So I I started gaining some specific tools in that area. And I kind of became an expert at things like sales, team management, you know, team unity, things like that, that I started to learn how to do mostly in companies and in nonprofits and that kind of thing. So I would do consulting work. I would work for different companies that would hire me to come in. I actually worked for an ADHD coaching company and became certified in ADHD coaching. So I learned a lot about that. And I took 10 years to really learn my craft But it was a big transition, especially for my family, right? Because my family didn't understand. I mean, my mom still to this day, she's like, ¿Qué haces otra vez? No entiendo. Pero eres como psicóloga? No, mami, no soy psicóloga. I'm not a psychologist. Pero consejera? (laughs) No, no consejera. Pero terapista? Like, she has no word. There's no word in Spanish for coach. It's coach. It is coach. (laughs) Soy coach, mami. Soy coach. Soy coach. Sí, pero de deportes, like my mom, she doesn't get it, right? She's, I don't, do you coach soccer? I don't get it. You're a coach. So at this point, they don't care anymore because they've seen all the success, but they still don't quite understand where, what exactly I do. They're just like, she helps people and they just are like, you know, that's enough. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny how parents make up these stories about what we do because they have no idea. my brother, he started working for government as a financial analyst. And my mom was telling all her friends that he was the mayor of the city. And I'm like, (laughs) that's definitely not what he does. (laughs) They invent stuff. They make it up. So funny. And I'm literally sitting there. I'm on the couch and she's at the table with all her friends. And I'm just like, that's a lie. Right. I love that. That's a good lie, though. I mean, if you're going to lie, at least you're, you know, improving. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, she improves it. But I love this. I love this work that you're doing. And you've been doing it for 18 years. And you're now going from coach to CEO. What is that process like? What is you're putting one hat to this? Well, maybe not the side. You're probably still coaching, but like you're putting on a whole different hat. How is that shaping your identity? Girl. 
Well, that is, this is like a whole nother game. You know what it feels like? It feels like when I first started coaching 18 years ago, it feels like you're starting wow. from scratch. Yeah. Cause it's a new mm -hmm. identity and it's a new set of skills, right? So I spent the last 18 years getting really good at coaching. And I think I probably spent 10 years like really getting good at it. And then the next eight years building my practice, right? And then I niched into specifically wanting to work with Latinas. And that was because I found myself in front of less and less brown people. There was one point where I remember I walked into a room and it was like all CEOs and it was all white men. And that took a lot of confidence too, girl, for me to be like, I'm going to be your coach. I'm going to coach you guys today. <laughs> I'm going to teach right. you, be, do, have. And I started teaching them and coaching them. I always had trust in the tools that I yeah. teach. I have a lot of trust in the tools. So I would always go back to that and that helped the foundation for me to start. But this next iteration of me, you know, it's where I need to go because there's so many people needing coaching at this point. And the pandemic really showed me the need to scale, like to do this work on a wider base. Because I was really happy doing one-on-one -on -one work for a long time. And then I yeah. ended up with 40 clients. And I was like, oh my God, I can't work this much. Like, this is too much. What am I going to do? <laughs> so then I started group coaching. And it was mostly uh, around the pandemic that I started doing groups. So now I coach mostly in groups. And I'm yeah. scaling the business because I want more Latinas to have access to this. What I really want for us is that we learn to manage ourselves. Because once yeah. you can manage yourself in a loving way, in a kind way, then anything is possible. If you want to make more money, you make more money. If you want to build a business, you build a business. It's whatever, you know, whatever you do. So that's yeah. what I'm going through now. So it's crazy because when I'm talking to like newer coaches that are like, oh, I'm, you know, I have three clients and, you know, I'm struggling every day to get on these <laughs> sales calls. I, my feeling in my body is like, girl, I feel you. I'm the same way. I have 100 clients, but I'm trying to get to 300 clients without working more. And I feel the same pain. Like it's the same experience. It's just different numbers now. That's it. But it's the same experience it. of starting afresh, building new beliefs, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'll give you an example. For a long time, the belief that really served me was if you work hard, you'll always have money. Oh. That was a really powerful belief for me. And I worked hard to, in order to always have money. That belief doesn't serve me as a CEO. It's a no, different belief. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm transforming that, right? The new belief is, Wendy, you will always have money. Uh, That's it. Period. Like it's not, I need to work period. hard for it. It's just, you will always have money, period. So mm -hmm. it's a new way of functioning, right? Because it doesn't mean I have to work hard and quote unquote work hard. Because what does work hard mean? In our culture, work hard means, you, you know, you're in the backyard and you're like doing like actual work. Like I picture my dad cutting the grass and like fixing right. the cars right. and everything that he did around the house. But even when, what he did at work, it was physical labor work. And mm -hmm. CEOing is not physical labor work, but it is exhausting. <laughs> it's just different work. It's mindset work. Yeah. It's making decisions. It's uh, prioritizing and strategizing and thinking about things in different mm. ways and problem solving. I feel like that's a lot of what we do is problem solve. Yeah. So I it's a that. hard transition, but I'm committed to doing it because I, I do think that the world needs to know these same tools that I know. And also, I've created such a beautiful life. That's what I want for all of you. Everything that I've wanted in my life, I have created. I got married. I had the, my kids. I'm making the amount of money I want to be making. I'm affecting lives. I work as much as I want to work or as little as I want to work. That's crazy, right? Freedom. It's so beautiful. And more important than all of that is the emotional freedom.
the freedom to know that I control me. Because again, it could all be gone tomorrow. It's nothing's for sure, right? In life. And because of that, I think that's the mo- one of the most powerful uh, experiences I've had is the understanding that anything could change at any point in time. And therefore, learning to manage me is the biggest game. CEO mm. Wendy. And I'll always be a coach CEO. no matter what. I love, and I'm sure that you use Confident Wendy every day in your CEOing, like every day. I'm sure she has to be like channeled to make those decisions. Because girl, I cannot imagine being in that seat and being like, okay, I got this. I don't have to work. I don't have to work as hard as I think, because I think sometimes working hard, we can overwork ourselves and work ourselves to the bone. And then it's it's not enough. I need more. Right. There's always going to be this like mentality of scarcity, just how our DNA works. But I think being able to just channel that spirit of emotional freedom, of looking around and like being grateful for where you are and knowing that you want something different. Maybe it's more, maybe it's not. You just want something different and that'll serve you at this point of your life. How beautiful. And I'm sure all that work led to this moment. Shout out to you, Wendy. Alice, <laughs> you're so, I love it. I love all this. I accept all the acknowledgement. I take yes. it in. I've gotten good at receiving because for a long time I was like, no, it's okay. And now I'm like, yeah, this has been a lot of work. We're talking like 20 years of work to get to yeah. this point. And now I want to teach all of you. I want to teach everybody. I want to like, you could have this too, is the thing. Then There's and no magic sauce here. How can people get the sauce, girl? How can people connect with yeah. you, learn more about how to be coached by you and how to make their lives 10 times better? Yeah, the best way is to follow me on Instagram for sure. So at Wendy Amara, that's where I'm most active. And then go to my website at wendyamara.com. And there's information about my podcast, also called the Yes Muhead Build It that I just launched recently. And I have two programs. I have a mastermind, which is kind of the level up smaller container. And then I have a group coaching program called Inspired Action, where I teach a lot of this stuff at the beginning level of like mindset, uh, mastery around your emotions, and taking consistent action, doing the things you say you're going to do, going to the uncomfortable place, increasing your tolerance for sitting in the uncomfortable so that you can actually reach your goals. And that's what it's really about. It's about helping everybody actually reach their goals, like create the life you really want. Yeah. I love that. And we're moving into our the end of our conversation, but I want to ask you a question, Wendy, before we get and, and get to our brindis and wrap this up, because earlier you talked about Guatemala and we talked about how Guatemala and other Central American countries are not very represented or known. Can I ask you a question to give us a preview into what is Guatemala, the beauty, the politics, et cetera? I know that's a big question, but give us kind of some high level overview so that we have some education walking away from this episode on what Guatemala is. Yeah, thank you so much. It reminds me of a story my dad told me because this is my first experience of Guatemala. We used to go there all the time in the summertime. We used to go every two years. So every summer, every two years for the summer, we would live in Guatemala for the summer, right? So I went when I was two years old. I went when I was four years old. went when I was six years old. So I have a lot of memories of being like in the campo with my abuelita and everybody running around and no one wearing shoes and all that. But I remember a specific, if I can share this story, I remember a specific incident when I was like seven years old. And this was here in the States, but my dad was talking to me about Guatemala. And so he said to me, he's, you know, Wendy, you come from these amazing human, these amazing people. You come from this 
lineage of the Mayans. And the Mayans were building temples before people even knew what temples were. The Mayans were inventing math. Like the Mayans were doing huge things in the world before there were other civilizations. That same blood is in you. So what are you going to do with your life? Right? I was like seven years old, but I swear I remember it was like my dad brainwashing me in that moment that I came from <laughs> these amazing, intelligent, genius lineage of kings and queens, and that therefore I had a responsibility to continue bringing the Mayan lineage through. And the crazy thing about the Mayans is they're still alive today. Like you go to Guatemala and there are yeah. Mayans, you know. Yeah, they speak Quiche, they speak different languages, they wear the jupil and the traje típicos, which we have a lot of them. Uh, we bring a lot of them from Guatemala here. It's the beautiful colors and the culture. So it's not a culture that was completely you know, decimated. It's still alive today. And of course, how in the indigenous community gets treated in Guatemala is really difficult and challenging because for so long they've been second-class citizens and, and in a lot of ways still are for sure, Right. So that's a challenge. That's part of uh, my mission is to support that. But Guatemala is a beautiful country. I mean, it's absolutely gorgeous with volcanoes, with um, lagos. Lago Atitlan is a gorgeous lake. It's beautiful, expansive. I remember the first time I went, and I, the first time I went as, as an adult, and I remember seeing the jungles of like where Tikal is and the green, mm. like the color green is a different color green than I had ever oh, yeah. experienced in the United States. <laughs> Yeah, I don't even know how to explain it. I'm just like, it's a version of green <laughs> that is just a different green. Yeah, so it's a magical place. Also, I had a spiritual experience in Tikal and in Chichen Itza and in different parts of, oh, there's this area called Livingston. I always like to talk about Livingston. Livingston, Guatemala is on the border between Guatemala and Belize. And it's like Jamaica. It's Guatemalan Jamaica. I kid you not. It's Rastafanians with their hair. And if you looked at somebody, you'd think they were like, you know, Afro-Caribbean from Jamaica, and they were going to speak to you like, hey, man, and they, they speak Spanish, son guatemaltecos, like totally Guatemalan. And it's because of how many, you know, uh, different, uh, different cultures were, I guess, taken over by, you know, conquered during that time or whatever. So it's a beautiful part of Guatemala also. It's, there's a, a lot of diversity in, in Guatemala, and there's a lot yeah. of beautiful things that have, that have come out of Guatemala, including a Nobel Peace Prize winner, Rigoberta Menchú, She's a indigenous woman that actually won the Nobel Peace Prize in the 1990s, early 1990s. Yeah, from Guatemala because of the work she was doing to fight for indigenous rights. So we are a country that has won a Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> I always yes, try to remember that. Talk about it. Talk yes. about it. And people don't realize how expansive, to use your word, Central America is. Like Belize, Guatemala, Nicaragua, and Honduras all have a Afro community that comes from just a complex history that we don't have time to get into right now. But like we get Garifuna, we get these different like groups of Afro-Caribbeans that bring so much culture to our countries. And then we have this indigenous mix that bring in so much of our ancestry and colors. And we're just una mezcladita de cosas, you know? And I think it's just beautiful and we need to talk about it more. And I love that you gave some space for Guatemala because I've been to Guatemala. I love Guatemala, love what it did for me, love the people. 
mis patojos, right? That's how y'all say yes, kids. Mis patojos. That's my dad. Every time he comes and sees my kids. ¿Dónde está el patojo? ¿Dónde están los patojos? Yeah. <laughs> Every single time. I just think it's beautiful. And I want to leave more space to talk about our countries, our flags, our beauty. Our We talk too much about the bad stuff, but we don't talk enough about how beautiful Latin America is and how expansive. I love that word, expansive. We are as a culture. So thank you, Wendy. Thank you for the space, your story, a little bit of insight. I want to move into our brindis and leave some space for you to say what you want to cheers to and what you want to manifest for our Latino community. So get your Coca-Cola in a wine glass, girl. <laughs> Coca-Cola in a wine glass. I know. <laughs> I love so it. what do you want to cheers to and what do you want to manifest for our comunidad latina? Oh my gosh, I want to manifest more self-trust. So more trust in ourselves. Yes, girl. More trust in our authenticity, in our instincts, in our intuition. We know a lot of stuff because it's in our blood. It's just in our blood as much as we try to deny it or try to you know, move into other cultures. We just know a lot of stuff. So trusting. Trusting ourselves more. Yeah. Oof. Oof. Salud. Cheers. Salud. Gracias. 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 I am going to walk away from this episode just channeling that bad bitch Jasmine, bad bitch Olalis, and just walk different because I think it's powerful. It's powerful to own exactly who you are unapologetically. And thank you, Wendy, for just reminding us of our badassery. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are, girl. You are a badass. Yes, Odalis. Look at you. Yes, sharing with the world your Honduran love and your love for Centro America and then the courage it takes to do this work, you know, consistently. Yeah, girl. I see you. I see Not you trusting yourself. Hype woman. Look at We need more Latinas hyping each other up. I love yes. this energy. Let's channel it. And shout out to your girlfriends because you mentioned them earlier and how they remind you who you are. We need good girlfriends in our life. Period. That's right, girl. Especially on the downs. <laughs> we need the girls to pick us back up. Especially. To remind us. Especially. Yes, yes. Thank you so oh, much. Thank, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank I appreciate it. Thank you for being here. Abrazos. Abrazos, Odalis. I love you. Y'all, go ahead and connect with Wendy. She is on Instagram, LinkedIn. Follow her on all the things. Instagram is Wendy Amara as well as LinkedIn. Website is www.wendyamara.com. Podcast is called Yes Mujer Build It. You can also find it on her website and also her social media channels. And for more cafecito and chisme, keep following Hello Latino Podcast on Instagram and find me on LinkedIn. There's more on my website, odalisjasmine.com. Y pues con mucho amor, tomi andreña.